one of the things we did at the Mount Baker Theater uh, at the joint worship gathering is we had uh, we passed the peace to each other in I think about six different languages, which I didn't really catch any of them. I uh, wasn't able to do it, but uh, it was it was interesting just to see this eclectic passing of the peace. The passing of the peace is an ancient Christian ritual. It's something that uh, is rooted in St. Paul's letters from the first century, where he would often write to different churches and say uh, things like, uh, grace and peace be with you. He would bless the churches. So for well over a thousand years, Christians have greeted each other with the phrase, the peace of Christ be with you, to which the other one would reply, and also with you. So let's try it. The peace of Christ be with you. Let's try it now with each other. Just turn to one or two people and pass the peace. The peace of Christ be with you. And also with you. All right, all right. Now, to a purely outside observer, what that sounds like is a bunch of rote words with a canned answer. That really, I mean, what does that have to do with anything? What does that actually mean? But from a theological perspective, there's a lot more going on with passing the peace. By definition, if you are in Christ, then you have received, to some degree, the peace of Christ. It's His mark in you and on you. Peace is an English word that translates a very Jewish word a Hebrew word called shalom. And we've talked about this word over and over again. Shalom is an all-encompassing peace. It's personal peace and social peace. Shalom exists when we're in right relationship with God, right relationship with one another. Not one or the other. Both. Shalom exists when we have what we need and when our neighbors have what they need. So when we're passing the peace or the shalom, it implies that we have to some degree actually received the shalom of Christ in our lives. Through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, our relationship with God has been put right that there is shalom taking place there. And that frees us then to be shalom passers, peace passers to other people. We pass the peace because peace is not meant to be given and then hoarded and stored up. It's kind of like breathing. We are meant to inhale for sure. But if you just inhale and never exhale, you're going to pass out and die, right? So we breathe. And that's the same with passing the peace. We receive the peace of Christ and then it goes out to the others, to the world. Like Abraham before us, who is blessed to be a blessing... We receive the shalom of Jesus in order to share the shalom of Jesus. Now, just a few minutes ago, Brandon read from Leviticus 25. And in that passage, we learn about the year of Jubilee. God's intent for the year of Jubilee, the 50-year celebration, is that everyone would get a rest. If anyone was enslaved, they would be set free. All debts would be paid. The land would be allowed to, be, uh, to regenerate and it wouldn't be harshly worked. Animals would get a rest. If you had bought or traded property, it would all go back to the original family owners. The year of Jubilee, the year of Shalom. There is no historical evidence that the 50-year year of Jubilee ever actually took place. Probably because there's humans involved and we're all a little bit too selfish to actually do that. But that doesn't mean that the idea of Jubilee didn't live strongly within Israel and with the people of God. 
that picture of rest and peace and freedom for those who are oppressed, that, that idea uh, embodies the kingdom of God. And the heart of that kingdom idea, the heart of that jubilee, is the idea of forgiveness. Let's stand uh, as I read the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay his Lord, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and his children, and to be slaves, to make repayment. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on a fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My Heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from their heart. Lord, when we hear a challenging word like that, we confess our tendency is to rationalize it or to ignore it. Lord, we haven't come here to play church. We haven't come here... um, to get our ears tickled. And so we pray uh, by your grace and wisdom, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to receive what it is uh, you're saying to us this evening. Amen. You may be seated. If you're just joining us uh, this evening, maybe for the first time or the first time in a while, we have been walking through Matthew's Gospel, getting the dust of Jesus uh, all over us as we're following Him on uh, this journey through uh, the account of His life and death and resurrection. And so uh, we're finding ourselves here in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And as the story begins, you might think it begins with Peter asking a question about how many times he should forgive someone who sins against him. That's not quite right. Peter's question is actually part of a much larger teaching that was initiated by a different question. 
In the beginning of chapter 18, the disciples came to Jesus and asked Him, Who among us is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? When your kingdom comes in full, Jesus, which one of us is going to be greatest? Well, Jesus, of course, takes this opportunity to do the teaching. He, he sees a nearby child, I assume, takes this child in his arms and says, Let me tell you something. Unless you're converted in the way you view the world, unless you're converted and become like this child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, don't worry about who's going to be greatest. You won't even be there unless you can humble yourself like a child. Of course, Jesus is teaching them that greatness in the kingdom is not like greatness in the world. Greatness in the kingdom is measured by humility. It's measured by our dependence on God and not our own resources. Jesus goes on to talk about the importance of treating each other right, about pursuing those who are struggling in their faith and struggling in their lives. He then talks about the importance of confronting one another. When one of our brothers or sisters in Christ is in open rebellion against God, He tells us to go after them and to reveal to them, don't condemn them, but reveal to them what it is that's going on in the hope that they will repent and be restored. All right, so Jesus is teaching us humility, purity, compassion, confrontation with the hope for reconciliation. And it is in that context that Peter then asks Jesus the question, How many times must I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Peter offers up, how many times? Seven times? Now we know from early Jewish writings, uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd century, that it was a common rabbinic teaching that you should forgive someone three times. If they keep coming back to you and repenting and they have a penitent attitude, you should forgive them three times. On the fourth time though, uh uh-uh. You can cut ties with them. So, now Peter has been hanging around Jesus for 18 chapters, a few years at this point, And he knows that Jesus does things a little bit differently than the typical Jewish rabbi. He's noticed that Jesus tends to teach with a lot more compassion, a lot more spirit of the law than letter of the law. So I think Peter's being a little bit generous. Instead of saying, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Three times. He's, he, he doubles it and says, how many times should I forgive them? Up to seven times? I wonder if Peter's a little proud of that offering of seven times. It's pretty good. Over twice as many times. But what Jesus says next was totally unexpected. And if we're honest, it's completely unnatural. Because Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but up to 77 times. That's numerical code for infinity. Jesus is saying two things. Forgive your brother or sister who's penitent an unlimited amount of times. And two, joined with that, is stop keeping track. It's not three times and on the fourth you're out. It's not seven times. It's not literally 77 times. You know what happens when we have a limit, don't you? We start ticking off the boxes. I'll... That's Steve, he's, he's ticked me off six times. I can't wait till he does the seventh. Then I don't have to work at this relationship anymore. I can write him off. Jesus is saying, stop keeping track. An unlimited amount of forgiveness. And that sounds like an exaggeration to me. It sounds like an impossibility. 
it's just not how the world that we live in typically works. A bunch of questions come up for me. What if I look like a fool? What if I get taken advantage of? Right? These are the questions that I have. Before Peter can start asking these types of questions that I bring up, Jesus tells a story, a parable. The parable begins like this. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. Let me pause there a minute. So let me just give you a sense of the structure. We've talked about this before, but uh, in your mind, picture the Roman Empire, and Caesar is in charge of the Roman Empire. He is the emperor, if you want to go Star Wars analogy. He's the top dog. And Caesar stays in power and feeds his mighty army by taxing all of the regions that he's over. The Roman Empire is vast in the first century, so it's difficult for Caesar to actually go out to all these regions and collect those taxes. So in his vast network of regions that he has taken over, he has Roman government and in some places he has foreign kings like King Herod and Pontius Pilate. We know those names, don't we? From the Bible. So let's pretend that uh, Christine is Caesar of uh, Washington State and we've got um, Jeff is the king of Whatcom County and um, then we've got Elsa and Sophia are the, um, you guys can be an oligarch or something like that over Bellingham, okay? So the way this works is, um, Christine is Caesar, and she expects taxes from all her regions to be coming in once a year. Head tax. Every living man, woman, and child owes a flat tax. Let's just call it 100 bucks. So everyone who lives in Bellingham is worth $100 to Christine. Jeff's in charge of collecting that tax. Now, Bellingham, or uh, even Whatcom County, or were you Washington? Yeah, you're, you're over Washington, and... Um, Elsa and Sophia are over Bellingham. So Jeff is going to employ these two to make sure that those taxes get to him, who then get to her. Now, even Bellingham is a little bit big for this mighty oligarch right here, Sophia and Elsa. So what then they do are hire tax collectors. They're freelance contractors. Sometimes they're called tax farmers. And so let's say, oh, there's the Clark family, and Brad, the four of you are going to come, and you're going you're to make a bid. You're going to say to Elsa and Sophia, we're going to bid $105 a head uh, to, to give you the, for taxes. You'll take five bucks off the top per head, and, uh, and they'll get the other hundred to then work up the food chain to get to Caesar. Now, Brad, that's a good offer, $105, but the Clark family's coming in. They've got a little more manpower because there's three of them. They're going to undercut you at $103 a head. They're still going to make a profit. See, so this is how it would work. These tax farmers come in, they make a bid, and they're freelance contractors. Now, at the end of the year, if you win that bid, Clark family, you're going to have to owe $100 a head on every person that lives in the city. You're going to have to owe it to them, right? The kings of this land. Once a year, they're going to take account, they're going to add it all up, and if they don't get enough money, something's going to happen. Either they're going to have to cover that loss, or they're going to have to answer to Caesar, which is pretty much a, a death wish. Okay? In this story, the local king is calling his tax farmers to account. And one of these tax farmers somehow owes the king 10,000 talents. Now that number may not mean anything to you, but let me put it this way. A talent was a weight, uh, a measurement of weight. 
And depending on the region you're in, a talent could equal anywhere from 60 U.S. pounds to 90 pounds. So let's take that conservatively and, and say that this tax gatherer owed 600,000 pounds of gold to the king. It's a lot of gold. It's a lot of gold. To put that another way, a talent was worth, one talent was worth 60 or 6,000 denarii. That makes this servant's debt 60 million denarii. Okay? 60 million denarii. An average day laborer earned one denarii a day. So it would take the average person 164,000 years to pay back that debt. It's an unthinkable amount. In fact, one scholar says he doubts there was even that much gold in circulation in Palestine at all in the first century. The idea here is that Jesus is saying this person owed the king a debt that was unthinkable, unpayable. Impossible debt. Now knowing this to be true, the king knows he can never recoup this debt from this one tax gatherer, this servant of his. And so what he does, like a shrewd businessman, is he says, well I know I can get at least something, at least for their lives. I'll sell mom and pop off to the slave auction. I'll get 600 denarii ahead and about 300 denarii ahead for the kids. And at least I'll, I'll recoup some of my losses. At the sound of this life-ending judgment. I mean, this tax gatherer is standing before the king realizing he's about ready. I mean, when you get sold at the auction for the slavery, you don't stick together as a family. He's about ready to lose his freedom forever. He's about ready to lose his wife and his children's freedom forever. He has no recourse, no way to pay this back. He does what, it, what the only thing he can do. He falls to his knees and pleads, have patience with me. Have patience. Give me an extension on that loan. I'll pay it back. It's a ridiculous statement, really. He can't pay it back. There's not enough years in his life to pay it back. Now what happens is almost unbelievable. More unbelievable than there being 10,000 talents of gold even in, in that part of the world. What happens is, the king forgives the debt. The king does not say, I'll give you an extension for a couple years. The king does not say, I'll put you on a payment plan and you'll just owe me a little bit every year for the rest of your life. The king forgives the debt. He's moved with compassion. How would you feel? Now I know none of you would have your cell phones on right now or texting right now. But if you had your phone on, pretend that it rang and it was the bank and they said, Hey, Jeff, we've been thinking. We just feel like we want to pay off your mortgage for you. We're going to absorb that debt. Right? Or if you're, if you're in my shoes, uh, Oh, what is this? Oh, you want to forgive my student loans? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how would you feel if you got that call and the burden of maybe whatever debt you carry is just just gone? Not not a payment plan, not reduced interest. Just wouldn't you? You'd be so happy. You know, I was sitting in the waiting room with Christy uh, Wilson and Nathaniel's mom, and we're waiting for him to come out of surgery and into the the recovery area where we could visit with him. 
And the doctor uh, gave us a call and said, not only is he ready for visitors, but the surgery went way better than we expected. He's doing awesome. So Nathaniel's mom, some of you have met her, she's about you know this tall and just uh, in good shape and everything. So she's like, ah! and she does a heel clip. That was an awesome heel clip. Turned off the mic. Anyway, she, she literally does this leap uh, down the hall. Now, imagine what this servant of the king must be feeling like. He leaves the presence of the king having almost just lost his family forever. Almost just lost everything he... Uh, that was a... Is that the mortgage company? Oh, okay, yeah. That was a phone ringing. All right. But what he does is diabolical. This man who has just been forgiven and given a new lease on life immediately heads out and finds a colleague of his, uh, another tax farmer, a man who only owed him a hundred denarii. That's, I mean, it's a few grand, right? And before he even speaks to this colleague of his, he begins choking him, right? He commits violence on him. And then he says... Give me the money you owe me. Pay back what you owe. In an almost hauntingly similar way, the words are almost exactly the same. This man's colleague falls to his knees. Just have patience with me, and I will repay you. The first servant who had received forgiveness, shalom, peace from the king, did not pass the peace on to his fellow man. Instead, the story says that he put his colleague into prison. You know, in first century prisons, they're not quite like our prisons. You didn't even get three square meals a day. In a first century prison, your family had to come and feed you if you wanted food at all. You lost every right you ever had, and you could not earn any money. So basically, by putting his colleague into prison, the man is saying, you'll never pay me back. In fact, I'm going to take away your means to pay me back, and there you will rot in prison. It's almost as if he's not worried about getting the money back. He's worried about being vindictive and closing the door on that relationship altogether. The fact of the matter is, that man actually was, had the right to do that. The man owed him a hundred denarii, couldn't pay. He had the right to send him to prison. Now the problem... The danger when we start demanding our rights is that then others' rights can be demanded of us. And that never turns out well in the long run. In this case, the the king catches wind of the servant's merciless actions and he says, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Is it not necessary for you also to show mercy to your fellow servant as I showed mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay the debt that was owed him. In other words, he handed him over to the torturers forever. Jesus concludes these sobering words with, My heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Wow. What a parable. (laughs) What a parable. 
how do we interpret this? What do we do with it? Well, first of all, um, it's been a while since we were in the parables. I think it was this, earlier this winter when we went through the parables in Matthew 13. So this is a refresher for some of you. But the first thing we do is we remember that a parable is not an allegory. So in this parable, uh, not every single detail or every single person has an equivalent in the world of Jesus and his disciples or, or, or in our world. So for example, we don't read this parable and say, okay, the king must be God and the servant must be me and the other servant must be my neighbor. It doesn't work that way. Because from the rest of scripture, we know that God is not a king who employs tax farmers, right? And we know that God does not uh, put people in prison who don't pay their debts because God doesn't have any debts. Um, We know that God does not have a secret room of torturers somewhere where he uh, is ready to to put people. God does not need to be informed by tattletales that someone has uh, wronged another person. He's quite aware of the things that are going on in our lives. Parables, then, are stories that are designed to get us to question reality. The meaning of the parable, of any parable, the meaning is found in the question that it gets us to ask. So, the question to ask is this. What response does Jesus expect his hearers to have from the story? Let me say that again. What response does Jesus expect his hearers to have from this story? He's just been talking about unlimited forgiveness to Peter. He knows how hard that would be to understand in a first century context, in any context. So he tells a story that reminds us of reality. And the reality that he's touching on is that every single person who's ever lived and ever will live has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That was common Jewish teaching. The disciples would have heard this story and seen themselves as debtors. They would have seen their nation, Israel, as a debtor. They knew their national history, that they had repeatedly rebelled against God, that they had gone into exile because of their idolatry and rebellion. And we could do the same thing when we read this story. We could look at our government structures all across the world, even in the United States, sometimes especially in the United States. We could look at our culture and in our churches and we could say, wow, we are far from being like Christ. We're not even close a lot of the times. We have systematized evil in our social structures and our culture that's so ingrained we don't even see it half the time. The disciples hear this story. They would have known deep in their hearts that they were not right with God. That they harbored bitterness, had pride, lacked humility, lacked faith and trust in God. I read that story. I see the same thing in me. The disciples knew it. We ought to know it. We owe an insurmountable debt. And the debt we owe, we cannot, cannot pay back. Now, what I find fascinating about this story, maybe you thought of this before, this came in a little devotional time I had on Friday morning. (laughs) What I find fascinating about this story is that Jesus is teaching this to his disciples before the cross. Before the resurrection. When he tells them, 
The part about the king having compassion and forgiving the debt. The disciples aren't thinking of Jesus at that point. Like you and I, we probably think of Jesus. But the disciples weren't thinking of Jesus at that point. They were thinking of the long history of God and His compassion and His mercy to Israel and to the patriarchs, to all the people who have been part of God's story in the Scriptures throughout history. Time and time again we read in the Old Testament of God having mercy, of God forgiving, of bringing life where death was deserved. How much more then should we who know about Jesus get the picture that God's grace and forgiveness truly has no bounds? Amen? Right? Christ forgives us when we're truly penitent, not seven times, not seventy-seven times. The point is that He forgives us indefinitely toward those who repent. This parable ought to awaken in us the fresh reality that we are forgiven. We ought to feel like that first man who was relieved the ten thousand talents by the king. When we feel the relief of that servant being forgiven his debt, we're invited to feel the weight lifted from our shoulders. And if you haven't felt that before, if you haven't received that forgiveness, you're invited to trust God for that forgiveness. Receive it. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. Those are Old Testament words. Those aren't just post-cross words. That's the character of God. And then we turn our attention to the second episode in the parable. The forgiven man, the first man who was forgiven, has truly been wronged by his colleague. The the other guy owed him a hundred denarii. It's true. But instead of passing the peace, the shalom, the forgiveness, he hardened his heart. He demanded his rights. He tried to take on the prerogative of God by seeking his own justice rather than letting God be the judge and having mercy. By putting that man into prison, he's closing the door on any opportunity for reconciliation. Jesus has been talking about humility, purity, seeking the lost, confronting and restoring the sinner. He now speaks about forgiving out of the peace that we've been given. In the parable, the unforgiving man is judged. So does this mean that God is going to judge us if we don't forgive? Does His forgiveness come with strings attached? Is it conditional? It doesn't quite work that way. Relationships, healthy ones at least, are not made and maintained through cold transactions. God doesn't forgive you and give you a special pass card that you stick in your wallet or your purse or in your passbook thing on your iPhone. It doesn't work that way. It's not a a cold transaction. Forgiveness can only come when you recognize you absolutely need it and when you allow Jesus to grant it without cost and without pride and when you truly are in a position of receiving forgiveness, it does something to a person. Doesn't it? You know what I'm talking about. It begins to melt you in a way. 
It begins to change how you see other people. You begin to grow in your ability to have compassion and understanding for other people because you know, you know what your heart looks like and what you're forgiven of on a regular basis. Dallas Willard writes, It's psychologically impossible for us to know God's pity for us and at the same time have a hard heart toward other people. So no matter what words we say or pray, we're not really asking for forgiveness if we can't forgive others because we really haven't experienced it for ourselves. then. We might be asking God to excuse us, but we're not asking Him to forgive us. And there's a big difference. When we fail to forgive, we're really asking God for grace for ourselves, but demanding justice for other people. Right? When we fail to forgive others, we hold out hope that our debtors will suffer. And sometimes we mask our lack of forgiveness with kind of the buzzword of the day, tolerance. I'm not really going to forgive you, but I'll put up with you. Great, what a compliment. Chris, I put up with you. Well, thank you, I really feel the love there. Uh, but, but that's kind of the, the MO today. It's like, oh, I, I'm not going to forgive, um, but I'll allow you to breathe the same air that's in my room. Now, we're talking about concepts here. Big concepts, important concepts. I want to talk about the other reality. And that is that, unfortunately, many of us hold deep, deep hurts at the hands of other people. Some of us have been sinned against by people that we knew, who should have been trustworthy, and they've broken those trusts against us. Some of you have been sinned against in unspeakable ways. And some of us may be in a place today where we hear this message and we want, maybe in our heart of hearts more than anything, to be able to forgive we sense a wall, a block, a fear. Because holding on to that debt, that anger, that resentment has in our brokenness and our weakness made us at least feel a little bit stronger, a little bit more in control. And we're afraid that if we let our guard down, oh, we're going to get hurt again. God knows that deep hurt. And I want you to hear the overarching word of the scriptures. Say, God is gracious to you. God is gracious. There's a call absolutely here for us to move past bitterness, to move past resentment, to work towards shalom and forgiveness. But it can only come when we're able to open up our hearts and receive it fully from Christ. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that we fully trust people the way we used to. Forgiveness does not ever guarantee restored relationship. But there is something else to consider. The words of Lewis Smedes, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to realize that that prisoner was you. Maybe you're here this evening and dealing with a great pain. 
inflicted by someone else. You can't even at this point imagine forgiving them. Then let your prayer be, Father, help me. Help me. Help me grow in love in receiving your spirit and receiving your forgiveness. Help me. Hold my hand. Show me progress. And all of us should ask ourselves, who do I struggle or refuse to forgive? Why? What am I gaining by keeping this grudge alive? What need is it satisfying in me? I want to invite us to uh, just a few moments of silence where you process that. And then uh, I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, we take comfort in your words um, on the Sermon on the Mount. And when you declare that blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, not because they mourn, but because of your promise to renew all things, to comfort those who mourn. Say, blessed are the humble, the meek. For it's they who will inherit the earth. Not the bullies, not the abusers. You call us blessed when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. You say, ours is the kingdom of heaven, Lord, and we have a hard time believing that. Help us to seek after your righteousness. Lord, hear our prayers. Where we hear these words in your parable and we want to be a more forgiving person. Lord, you know what prevents those things. We pray for your help. Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for reconciliation with others. You say, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Help us to live in a posture of of mercy, Lord. Help us to see daily how we receive mercy from You. Help us to be grateful. Help us to be pure in heart. Lord, we confess our hearts are conflicted. But we want to see You. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Lord, we want to see You. We want to know you. And you say, Blessed are the peacemakers, the shalom makers, the passers of the peace that we receive. For they, for we, shall be called sons and daughters of the living God. Lord, help us to be men and women 
boys and girls of peace. Help it to be for us like breathing, receiving and blessing, receiving and blessing. We ask for our miraculous things, Lord. And that's why we're asking you. Amen.